Well, I'm going to start this out by reading a passage from Hebrews 4, and we're going to go through 8 through 13. Now, if Joshua had succeeded in giving this rest, God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. So there's a special rest still waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors, just as God did after creating the world. So let us do our best to enter that rest. But if we disobey God, as the people of Israel did, we will fall. And this is the key passage, key verses I want us to follow. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eye, and he is the one whom we are accountable. God's word is the most powerful gift and tool we have ever been given. And today... I'm going to be honest with you guys, I do sermons really weird, and it's also been four years since I've done a sermon, so bear with me. So I'm going to pray us in, and we're going to jump into one of the most important passages in all of Scripture, but we're also going to be jumping around all the time. So I'm going to pray us out. Lord, holy and true, we thank you, Lord, that you reign on high, that your kingdom has come that your kingdom dwells within us, Lord, and that one day we will see that kingdom physically, Lord, as physically as we see each other and as physically as we can touch the ground and the trees around us, Lord. We long for that day, Lord, and we thank you that your grand story of the Bible, Lord, it's not over, and that we can enjoy moment by moment your word. Amen. All right. If you don't have a Bible today, I will have Mr. Joe give some Bibles out. Um, Today's the day you really want a Bible. (laughs) So, yes, we will do that. Um, Can you jump to the next slide? All right, so we have goals, some terminology, and our context. So our goal today is to see the entire meta-narrative of Scripture and how it points to our passage in Luke 2, 8 through 20 today. And you're probably thinking, what the heck's a meta-narrative? So a meta-narrative, when I say that word, I'm talking about the whole story of the Bible, from Genesis through Revelation. That's, called, that's the meta-narrative, everything in between that. So we're going to see how the entire Bible hinges off of four main acts. And when I say an act, think of like a, a play. There's different parts to a play, and they all are interdependent upon each other. So in the Bible, we have four main acts. The curse that comes on Adam and Eve, and in Genesis 3.15, the promised son, and we'll get into that a little bit later, the promised son who will rescue humanity, the birth of that son, which is our passage, the death and resurrection of that son, and the eventual return of that son. So, got a lot to cover, but we're going to have fun. (laughs) Um, And you're also going to notice in this, we're going to be making a whole lot of connections, and you're going to go, you know, I feel like he's missing a couple of things in this. He could have pointed on a couple of different points. I did that on purpose. 
And I'm doing that because I want you to have a spark of interest into the God's Word so that you will later on go and find more connections to God's Word and see how God's Word is one big collective story that is interrelated. And so Luke 2, for context, Luke 2 is a continuation of Luke 1. So Luke 1, we talked about two weeks ago and last week about the uh, promised son to Zechariah and Elizabeth, who is John the Baptist, and his birth. And then we're also told the angel story of coming to Mary and the promised son to her, that was Jesus. And we had just seen in the last sections of, this ver- or of our passage um, the birth of Jesus. And now we are with a whole bunch of dirty shepherds. And we're going to have fun with that. Okay. I'm getting ahead of myself now. Okay. So there's a good thing to notice with Luke. Luke is the author of this book, but he's also a Gentile. And when I say Gentile, he's not Jewish. And that's really important to notice, especially with what we're doing today, because he doesn't have Jewish biases. And a Jewish bias, he's not trying to show you this story of Luke 2, 8 through 20 as being connected to the Old Testament. He's not doing that. He's just writing down what's being told to him. Now, Matthew, Mark, and John, they are showing you how Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Luke's not doing that. Luke is just telling us a story and what's been told to him. So that's important to remember. All right, you want to go to the next slide? So we are going to read our passage today. So if you would like to flip your Bible to Luke 2, 8 through 20, we will begin reading. That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. And suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them, and they were terrified. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. And suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. And when the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And they hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph. And there was the baby lying in a manger. And after seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angels had said to them about this child. And all who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. But Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. And the shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. Now, as we read this, I'm sure some of you are looking up and saying, holy smokes, it looks like a, a unicorn got hit by a semi-truck. Now, all of these colors, don't worry about them. I'm doing, I have these colors up here, and they represent themes in the Bible. So the Bible is chock full of themes. So 
For an example, the purple up here, the purple is the theme of God's kingdom. And you can follow that theme through the entire Bible. And there's tons and tons and tons of different themes. And you could really choose any topic in the Bible and find it as a theme. Bread, ravens, salvation, the Messiah, firstborn son. All of these things you can follow in the Bible and find a story within a story. It's extremely interesting and very fun. And we're going to focus on a couple of different stories. But don't worry about these colors. I'm not going to have them stress you out. Okay. All right. Can you skip to the next slide? So we're going to start with the first part of our, the first theme that I want to talk about is the shepherds themselves. The shepherds are crucial to this story. They actually play a really special role, not only in this story, but in the entire biblical narrative. And we're going to walk through that story. Um, you can skip, you can go to all these different passages, but I have them up here so that you can write them down and look at them later too. So the first passage we're going to talk about is Genesis 4, 1 through 10. So I want you to picture yourself as Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had just left the Garden of Eden. They had just been kicked out. And in Genesis 3.15, God makes a promise to Adam and Eve that one day they would, be, they would have a son. And this son would kill the snake that tricked them and cursed them. And Adam and Eve leave the garden with that hope. And in chapter 4, we are told, and then Adam, or Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. And then she gives birth to a son. And what does Eve say during this? Alas, the Lord has given me a son. Thinking, I'm sure she thought, could this be the son that will step on the snake's head? And a little bit later, she has another son. And this son is now named Abel. So we have Cain, who's the oldest, and Abel, who's the youngest. And I want you to see how Cain and Abel are treated differently. Cain is this son who they think is the promised son, and he's a gardener, while Abel is the younger son, and he's a shepherd, and he lives out with these dirty animals. A little bit of favoritism going on here. And as we read through this story, Cain and Abel present offerings to, to God, Cain's offering is his first fruit, like the best thing that he could offer God. Whilst Abel offers a little lamb. And, and you know the story. God accepts Abel's offering. Two reasons why. First, the heart behind it. And the fact that this is a picture of the coming Messiah. And Cain's response to this is that he kills his brother. How can this little dirty shepherd boy, my younger brother, be accepted by God when I'm supposed to be the one that's going to save my people and to save my family? And he kills him. So from this first story, we see that shepherds are a little, a little lower than everyone else. They are a little bit dirtier and they're a little bit less liked. Now we're going to move on to another story in Genesis 6. Genesis 6 is the story of Noah and the flood. And in that story, we see another shepherd. And Noah not only shepherded the animals onto the ark, but he also shepherded the people of the world by warning them of the coming flood that was going to happen. 
And he did that faithfully. So in a sense, Noah is another picture of this shepherd. So we're going to move on from Genesis 6 into Genesis 15. And this is the, the covenant promise that God made with Abraham. Now, Abraham is a really wealthy shepherd. And God makes a promise with Abraham. His descendants will be as numerous as the stars and a blessing to everyone. And as you read on into the Bible and you read into um, the sons that Abraham has and the eventual nation of Israel, they're not really all that much of a blessing. So this has to be pointing to someone in the future as well, a promised someone who would be a blessing. And Abraham is given a, a son, of course, and we know that to be Isaac. Isaac was born to two old people, like really old people. And this promised son God asked to, be, to have back. He asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And obviously, I should stop saying the word obviously because that might not be obvious to some of you. But God asked Abraham to give Isaac back as a test to see Abraham's faith. And as Abraham lifts up that knife to kill his son, God brings him something, a reversal of the shepherd's role. He's given a lamb. Usually it's the shepherd that gives God a lamb, but not in this case. And we're going to see that's a theme in itself. So Abraham is now a part of this shepherd promise. We're going to move on again to Exodus 3. And now this is the story, Moses. Moses is one of the descendants of Abraham, and he's in Egypt. He has this whole great story you can read on your own time. But he kills a man and runs into the desert because he's afraid. And I think it's 40 years or something like that. He's in the desert as a shepherd. And God comes to him where he's at as a shepherd and says, I'm going to use you. I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make you a leader of my people, of my sheep. You're going to shepherd not just animals anymore. You're going to shepherd my people. And I'm going to make this promise to you. And Moses has, what's the right word for this? The way that Abraham and Moses encounter God is very similar to in Luke, how Zechariah and Mary encounter God. He is going to be impacted primarily by this promise. And so is Mary and so is Zechariah. They were the ones that were going to be uh, carrying the brunt of the promise, essentially. So God first gives them an encounter. And then later on, as we read into Exodus, just like in our passage in Luke 8 or Luke 2, God then reveals himself to his people. So on Mount Sinai, God revealed his glorious power and his glorious presence to the nation of Israel. And in Luke 8, God does the same thing with the shepherds. He shows himself who he is to his people and what he's about to do. And the last verse that we're going to read into this one is pretty important for our passage. So 1 Samuel 16. And you can write these down again or you can go to them. But this is where David is blessed by God and called to be the king of Israel. And now David 
David has a couple of interesting things. First off, he's from Bethlehem, which is our, where our passage takes place in Luke 2. But David is also considered worthless. In fact, that word in this passage where Jesse talks about David to Samuel, um, a lot of our Bibles translate him as, it says, oh yeah, I have one more son, it's my youngest son. It's, not a, it's a terrible translation. That word actually means worthless. Oh yeah, I have one more son, he's worthless to me. That's why he's a shepherd out there. And God chooses this worthless son to be king. And not only to be king, but to be the heir of the promised king. David's role in this is incredible. And I'd love to jump more into why David is so important to this, but we really got to keep going because I got a lot of things. But, all right. So now we're going to go back to Luke 2, 8 through 20. And we're going we're gonna to notice some things about these shepherds. So obviously they're of a low social status, as we talked about. Shepherds were dirty. They lived with animals. They didn't smell all that good. They didn't really make a whole lot of money. But these shepherds in particular were special because they're from Bethlehem. And in the first century Bethlehem, the shepherds there had a special honor and a special gift because they were the ones who were giving the unblemished sheep to the temple. They personally get to bring their sheep before God and say, God, here, we're offering something to you, God. Here, take it, please. So they have that special relationship. And if you notice at this, uh, in our story, it's happening at night. And it would have been cool if it happened at day, but there's a couple of connotations that with the night. First off, God's light shines brightest in the darkest places. God reveals himself in their darkness. You have to realize, for it's been nearly 400 years since Israel had last heard from God. And now all of a sudden, these shepherds are the ones that get to see his glory and to see his might in the middle of the field. God comes to them in their low position to lift them up. And another thing to notice when you go out into the night and you look up in the sky, what do you see? Stars. So those stars are also important because what did God promise Abraham? I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in heaven. God is showing that this moment, this moment right here, this is fulfilling everything that I promised your people. Everything that's about to happen is going to change everything. And now, Bethlehem itself is special, not only because it's the, the hometown of the ancient king of David, but Bethlehem, geographically, is located facing the east. And you're like, oh, well, why does that, why does that matter? Well, the last time God's glory was seen by Israel in Ezekiel, it was leaving Israel and Jerusalem, and it went to the east. God's glory, God's holy presence is coming back to Israel. And this presence, it's doing something new. 
It's coming to dirty shepherds. Not straight to the temple, but to indwell and to be with God's people. And again, they encounter God's glory, as we just said. So they are given this amazing blessing, even though they're dirty little shepherds, and God has blessed them with this. But also, their roles, just like Moses and Abraham and all these other shepherds, their role is reversed. They're not given. They're not giving God a lamb now. God's giving them a lamb, the lamb of God. He is blessing them. He's reversing that role. And I, I love this stuff. I wish I could just talk about that all day, but I can't. So if you want all these passages, come to me afterward if you haven't written them down or just look at them yourself. Um, can you go to the next slide? We're going to jump to another theme in this. So now we, now we have a little bit of an idea of these shepherds. We're going to jump onto something new. <laughs> the next main characters in this. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them, and they were terrified. And later on we see sudden, suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. This one excites me because it's just so crazy to think about. So the theme of angels, let's start with where the angels began. And it's not in Genesis. It's actually in Job 38, 1 through 7. And in this passage, we're, we're told by God uh, as he speaks to Job, where were you when I created the world? When the angels sang glory over, me, over creation as I was creating it. Where were you when, I, when you were doing this? So we see that the angels were present at the first creation. While God was forming the world, these angels were his cheerleaders, just enjoying everything that God is doing. And as we move on from this story, we come to Genesis 3, 22 through 24. So God had created the world, and he created Adam and Eve, and... Adam and Eve fail. They sin. And God kicks them out of the garden. And the last, and, and God places angels, the cherubim, to block the Garden of Eden. These angels who were rejoicing at God's creation and eternal life with God now are standing guard over it to not allow man to come back into it. Which is sad. No longer are we allowed to come into the garden of perfection. And it sets up this great story that is the Bible. Until the next time that we see the angels praising God. So we come back to our passage, Luke 2, 9 through 14. So the passage we already read. Now, the angels are back and they're praising God as he does a new creation. God is now, pray they are praising God. Glory be to God for creating and starting something anew. And as we move on and as we read about the story of Jesus, we come to the end of Jesus' life and he's died and he's in a tomb and we come to Luke 20, 1 through 18. And in, as God's uh, disciples come and they come to see 
What has happened to him? They see the stone is rolled back from Jesus' grave and tomb. And what is, what's standing outside of this tomb and grave? Two angels. Just like in the Garden of Eden, they're guarding the new creation, the Garden of Eden, and eternal life. But this time, they're not keeping humanity out of this creation. They're inviting them in. God has reopened and re-allowed us to come into his new creation and eternal life. And these angels are a picture of that. Isn't this fun? There's like a whole lot of different connections in this passage, in this one passage that hinges off of everything else. So let me get back to my spot. You want to go to the next slide? All right. Another theme that's running through this is the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory. So when we talk about the Shekinah glory, we're referencing back to that, that um, storm and fire cloud that was leading God's people in the Exodus and through Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So this is God's holy presence. It's usually described as a cloud, a great storm cloud. And when this comes, it is a frightening thing because it is a, a picture of the raw power, the holy power of God. And it is something that can destroy you. So we're going to follow this glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory. And we're going to start in Genesis 1 through 2. And as God was creating the, the world, his spirit, his glory, hovered over the new creation. It was present and creating everything, our, our current world and us. And as we move on in this story, we come to Exodus 19, 16 through 25, which I should turn to. And in this story, God's glory and God's power is revealed on Mount Sinai to God's people. And it invites them to do a new covenant with him. The, the curse has already happened. Man is kicked out of the garden. And now God is inviting his people into a promise again. He's saying, I will be with you if you follow my commandments. And the people of Israel, they say, uh, Moses, we don't want to get anywhere close to that because that's God's holy presence. Uh, you go up for us. So God in this story has invited us and has made a promise with us, and it is shown through his power and through the storm that covers Mount Sinai. And as we move on in Exodus, and we come to Exodus 40, and a lot has happened. Israel has kind of complained the whole time God has been with them, that God isn't taking care of them the way they think that he should. And God has been faithful through this whole time. And he has, um, Moses creates something called the tabernacle, this tent where God could dwell with his people because it, the Israelites, they said, oh, I'm not going up into that mountain. I'm not going to go see God. God says, okay, I'm coming down to you and I'm going to live in this tent. And this tent is completed in Exodus 40 and the glorious fire and storm of God fills the temple or the tabernacle. And it is so powerful, so incredible, not even Moses can go into this into the tabernacle. God's holy presence is powerful, it's dangerous, and it is holy, holy, holy. 
And it is a very dangerous place for broken and cursed people like us to go near. So as we continue on, we come to 1 Kings 8.10. A lot has happened now. Um, Israel is no longer wandering in the desert. They are now a people group and living in their own land of Israel or Canaan. And David has lived and now has died. And now we have uh, David's son, Solomon. And Solomon builds a temple. So now that Israel was a nation and now that they had a capital They wanted to have God's presence in one specific location so that they could come before God. So this wasn't just this tent moving around. So Solomon builds the temple, and as he finishes this temple, he throws this incredible party where he sacrifices all these cattle before God, and a great worship band starts. And all of a sudden, the glory of the Lord appears and fire and a storm comes down and fills the temple. God's presence is now in the temple and with Israel. So now we're going to move on to Ezekiel 10 through 11. We had just talked about this passage um, in regards to the glory of the Lord leaving the temple because Israel no longer gives God anything. They don't worship him. They don't trust him. They use him, or they think they can use him, and God gets sick of it. God says, no, 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 I'm done with you guys. I'm leaving. And we see God's holy presence, this throne of God. It gets up, and it leaves the temple, and it goes way far out and leaves to the east. And from what I understand, we don't see it again in the Old Testament. And then we come to our passage in Luke 2. God's presence has returned. God's presence is back, as we had said, and it's doing something new. And as we continue through the life of this newborn king, this lamb of God, we see God's holy presence a couple of more times. Um, So in Matthew 17, 1 through 13, this is called the transfiguration. So Jesus has his disciples and he tells them, hey, guess what? I'm going to die on a cross, and I, but I will raise again and I will bring new life to you, but I will come back. And Jesus' disciple, especially Peter, says, that's not going to happen to you, Jesus. We're, we're not going to allow that to happen. Don't say such things. And God, Jesus looks at them and says, get behind me, Satan. You know not what you are saying. Do you not know that God has a purpose and a plan? And the next chapter over, Peter and John are sleeping on a mountain with Jesus, and they fall asleep. And when they wake up, they wake up and they see this cloud coming, this glorious cloud. And all of a sudden, Jesus is transformed. He has pure white clothing on, and Moses and Elijah are with him. God is confirming Jesus is the Son of God. Because Peter, seeing all this, says, oh, uh, Jesus, uh, why don't I build a, a shrine for one for you, one for Elijah, and one for Moses? And this cloud, out of this cloud, a voice comes and says, this is my beloved Son, 
Listen to him. Jesus is the glory of God incarnate. And our last verse with this theme is Acts 2. So Jesus has died and he's resurrected again. And now we are with the disciples who are told to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And as they're waiting for this Holy Spirit, they're praying and they're seeking after God. And all of a sudden, a whirlwind comes. This great supernatural thing happens and they start seeing fire that looks like tongues of fire coming above them. God's presence has come back into a temple. But it's not the temple of Jerusalem anymore. It's us. God's glorious power and God's holy presence. Now, now it indwells in you and I. We are the temples of God. That holy and powerful thing that we were never able to come anywhere near as believers in Jesus, that holy power, it lives in us. I I would love to keep going with this theme, but there are so many more. Okay. You want to go to the next slide? All right. So we're going to go back to Luke 2. I wish I brought like six Bibles so I wouldn't have to keep going back and forth. There's more on the (laughs) So Luke 2 and verse 11. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. So this angel comes and he tells these shepherds, hey, don't be afraid. I come here to bring you really, really good news. Today, the Savior, the Messiah, he's born. He's here. And the the Messiah, we're only going to touch on a couple of verses because this is a theme that could last us all summer to go through. It is huge. It is vitally important to the Bible. Um. Who is this Messiah? So I'm going to make you guys move again, or you can just write it down. Genesis 3.15. So in Genesis 3.15, we're back in the Garden of Eden. We have just seen Adam and Eve fail. They've sinned against God, and they've hidden themselves. And God comes, and he walks through the garden and says, Adam and Eve, where are you? And they come out and they say, oh, we hit ourselves because we were afraid of you. And God tells them, what have, what have you done? What, have you eaten from the fruit I have told you not to eat? Uh, and Adam responds, uh, yeah, we ate it, um, but uh, Eve made me do it. <laughs> and get to Eve, and Eve says, uh, yeah, I ate it, but um, the snake made me eat it. <laughs> and the snake just takes it. He doesn't blame anyone else because he already knows that he's screwed up. <laughs> And God curses Adam and Eve because of this. And he curses them that they will be pushed out of the garden and one day they're going to die. And that's a harsh blow to live from going from living forever in perfection. Now you're kicked out of perfection and one day you're going to die. But God does not leave them in this curse, in this death. He makes a promise to them. And I'm going to read that promise because it's incredibly important for the rest of Scripture. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, 
between your offspring, some of your Bibles might say seed, and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will bite his heel. Now, if you're going to step on a snake, odds are it's going to bite back. But if you step on that thing's head, it's dead. God is making a promise to Adam and Eve that one day, one day I'm going to save you from this. I'm going to rescue you from this sin that you've brought yourself into. And as we go through the Bible, we're given numerous glimpses and hints of this promised son. But one of the most interesting and fascinating moments that we're told about this Messiah comes from someone that actually was trying to curse Israel. So in Numbers 24, 15 through 19, Israel is camped out in the desert again, and the king of this land that they're camped in doesn't like that they're there at all. And he sends a witch to go and curse them. And his name is Balaam. Now, Balaam goes to curse Adam and Eve, or uh, not Adam and Eve, Israel, and God doesn't let him curse him. Actually, God makes everything that comes out of his mouth to be a blessing over Israel. And there are some key words that God makes Balaam say. And come on, Bible. So in 24, 15 through 19... If I can get there. This is the problem of having big fat thumbs. All right. This is the message Balaam delivered. This is the message Balaam, son of Beor, the message of the man whose eye see clearly, the message of the one who hears the word of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty who bows down with eyes wide open. I see him, but not here and now. I perceive him, but far in the distant future. A star will rise from Jacob. A scepter will emerge from Israel. And listen to this. It'll crush the heads of Moab's people, cracking their skulls, the people of Sheth, Edom will be taken over and Seir, its enemy, will be conquered. While Israel marches on in triumph, a ruler will rise in Jacob who will destroy their survivors of Ur. So there's a couple of, God, obviously Balaam is talking about the Moabites. One day God will crush these people, but there's another message in this as well. A snake killer, someone that's going to crush a skull. The promised Messiah will come. And it says a scepter will rise. He will be king over Israel. Not only over Israel, but over God's chosen people. This is such a fun passage because I would never would have imagined seeing Jesus coming out of the mouth of someone trying to curse Israel. So we'll move on from that. And we're for our last passage for the theme of the Messiah, 2 Samuel 7 1 through 16. Now, this is um, during the life of David. David is, has conquered Jerusalem, and he's looking out in Jerusalem and, and at his palace, and he says, 
I have this amazing palace, but what does the Lord have? He lives in that dirty tent over there. I want to build him a temple. Um, Nathan, you're a prophet. Talk to God. Make, have him bless this operation. And Nathan says, okay, yeah, you're blessed. Here, have my blessing. And God speaks to Nathan after that and says, uh, no, no, no. Go, go talk to David again and tell him this. You want to build me a temple, and I honor that, but I'm going to do something greater for you. I'm going to make your family have a king who will live eternally, who will rule over Israel forever. And one day, this son, he's not only going to be the son of David, but it says he's also the son of God. So a son who will be David's line and from God's line will be king over Israel. And as we move through the Bible, who is that? That promised king is now born in our passage in Luke 2. In the city of David, the Messiah, David's heir, David's king, is born. That, I, I can't imagine what those shepherds were thinking in that moment. Here, heaven is proclaiming the king's here. 400 years of silence, and now the king is here. All right, now these two themes I love because they're really weird, but they're really cool if you follow through them, follow through all these passages to see what God is doing. So, back to my passage. Okay. In verse 12, so the angels have just told them, told the shepherds that a Messiah will come, that he'll be the Savior, that he'll be born in the city of David, in Bethlehem. And then they give some signs that um, when, when they're looking for baby Jesus, they're going to find him and they're going to know it's him because he's going to be wrapped in cloth and he's going to be in a manger. So let's follow, uh, follow why the strips of cloth is key to this passage. And I need All right. So we're going to go back to Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, we've already talked about there's been this curse on Adam and Eve, and now there's this promised son who's going to come. And when God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden, he does something for them. He kills an animal and wraps them in clothing as a covering. It's a picture of one day God is going to cover their sins. He's going to, it's going to cost blood, but he'll cover their sins one day. And as we follow through this story, we come to Leviticus. Um, so Leviticus 1, 1 through 13. And in Leviticus, we've just finished the Exodus. God's people have made this promise with God and his glory on the mountain. And God gives them a whole bunch of rules. In Leviticus 1, it talks about the sacrificial animals and how these sacrificial animals are a picture. They are covering the sins temporarily of the Israelites so they can come before God. So blood is, caught, blood is needed to come before God. Something has to die in order for us to be covered, to come before God. 
So as we walk through, we come back to our passage in Luke 2. Jesus has entered into our world wrapped in cloth. It's a hearken back to when God covered us. Jesus has entered into our curse. He is now bearing those skins. He's bearing the clothing that we are cursed to wear. And as we walk through um, the life of Jesus, we come to John 20, 1 through 10, where Jesus has died and he's resurrected and Peter and John, they don't really believe it, so they run and they go check the tomb themselves. And when they run to go check that tomb, they don't see Jesus, but Jesus' clothes are there because Jesus doesn't need our covering anymore. He died and rose above that covering. He doesn't, he's not under our curse anymore. And in Revelation 6, 9 through 10, I just love going through these stories. They're so fun. When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all those who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. They shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? And then a white robe was given to each of them. And they were told to rest a little while longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus, were were to be martyred and had joined them. God has taken our old, dirty coverings of this world. He's thrown them away, and now he gives us white clothing, pure white clothing, and it's pure white through the blood of Jesus because Jesus' blood was enough to cover our sin and our death. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate covering. Ah, I just love this. Okay. Revelation 19, 6 through 8. Yep, that's right. Then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of a mighty ocean wave or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give him honor for the time has come for the wedding feast of the lamb and his bride has prepared herself and she has been given finest of pure white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. God has taken off that dead, bloody animal off of us. He's thrown it away and he's given us a wedding dress. We are now the bride of Jesus. No longer needing to worry about what's going to cover us because Jesus has covered us ultimately with his pure white clothing through his blood. (sighs) That one's so fun. This one's fun too. 
but it's not as fun. The manger, manger is also an important thing. So the angel tells um, these shepherds, you'll find um, this promised son, he'll be wrapped in strips of clothing, and he's going to be in a manger. So let's walk through that. Back to Genesis 3, because it's important. So God gives this promise of the promised Messiah, and then he curses Eve, and Eve is cursed with labor pains. And God then curses Adam. And God's curse to Adam, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whom, whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because you, because of you, all your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you. Though you will eat of its grain by the sweat of your brow, and you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you are made. For you were made of dust, and from dust you will return. So God provides a way for us to eat, and he provides a way to sustain us. But this food, it's not going to last long. You can eat and eat and eat all your your life, and you're still going to die. So food that has no weight behind it, no way to sustain life for us. And as we go through the Bible, we come to Exodus 12. So Moses has, has been told by God, hey, go to my people and warn Pharaoh that he needs to let my people go. And Pharaoh refuses several times. And now God says, okay, now I'm going to free you from Pharaoh, but we're going to do a feast first. And this is the first Passover feast. And Passover, if I can find it, God paints a picture of a meal that will eventually last forever, a meal that will save. They eat bread, unleavened bread, and they eat a lamb. And they eat this in haste because they're going to be leaving Egypt soon. And God now gives them this meal, this send-off meal that they're supposed to eat every year. So it's a picture meal, but it's not a meal that's going to last them forever. It's not a meal that will sustain them. It will sustain them until next year. So it'll never satisfy us. The Passover will never satisfy us on its own because it's a picture of what is to come. Um, I'm going to skip Exodus 16 because I should have taken that out and I didn't. (laughs) Um, The next passage I want to talk about is John 6. 47 through 59. And in this story, Jesus has fed the 5,000 and he has done this miraculous thing by feeding them bread and fish. And lo and behold, the next day, they're hungry again. And they come looking for Jesus, not because they want to hear anything about Jesus, but they want to be fed again. So they come to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, where'd you go? And Jesus looks at them and he says, You're not following me because you actually want me. You want the bread and the fish that I gave you again. You want your bellies to be filled. And they ask for a miraculous sign like, oh, you claim to be the Messiah, but that's too much to bear. Give us a sign from heaven. He just fed them from like 12 fish. Like that's a pretty good sign. 
But they, they want another sign. And of course, what example do they use? Um, Moses in the past, he fed us with manna and with quails. What can you do for us? That's the stupidest question they could have asked. And Jesus responds, if anyone wants to be satisfied and to follow after me, he must consume my flesh and drink my blood. Jesus is the satisfactory meal. He is that meal that will satisfy us eternally. That's why we have communion and we remember that amazing gift that God has given us. So in our passage in Luke 2, Jesus is in a manger. And a manger is where you feed sheep. It's a picture that one day this child will satisfy and feed God's people. And it's not something the shepherds brought. This lamb was provided by God. And in Revelation 19, we had just talked about that passage um, in our strips of cloth theme. Um, the wedding feast of the lamb is started. The bride is prepared for her groom. And the wedding feast of the lamb, the feast that will satisfy you for eternity, is presented to God's people. Now, this could be taken two ways. It, the, the wedding feast of the lamb, it, it's probably referring to Jesus as the groom, but it also could refer to Jesus as the meal. Jesus is that satisfactory meal. <sighs> okay. You want to go to the next slide? This is all the, the themes that I'm going to go through. And I'm sure you could read this passage. You could read any passage. And you could find a theme that runs through the whole Bible. One of my favorite themes to follow is the theme of bread. Because you can follow how God uses bread from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And there's tons of different themes. You could follow the theme of ravens and how God has provided for his people. And he uses the symbol of a raven numerous times. There are tons and tons and tons of different themes that you could follow, and I encourage you to do so. And as we finish this off today, I'm going to leave you with a couple of ways that you can apply this to your own life. Obviously, we've seen God's promises. We've seen that God's promises show themselves to be true time and time again in this word. Do you actually believe that God can do what he says he can do? Do you believe what God says about you? Once you were wretched, but I have picked you out and I have made you a new creation through believing in my son and through being a part of my work. Do you believe that? That God calls you his child? That once you were nothing, and the one who formed you in your mother's womb knows you. He knows you personally, and he loves you. Do you believe that? I encourage you to really look into that. And there are two, in our passage in Luke 2, 8 through 20, there are two proper responses. 
And I'm going to read to you the last half of Luke 2. And when the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And they hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph. And there was the baby lying in the manger. And after seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. And all who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. But Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. And the shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard. And it had been just as God had said. So there are two responses in this. You can respond as Mary responded, and how the shepherds responded in verse 20, by pondering and wondering and really meditating on what God is doing in your life, in the Bible, and what he will do when he returns. Ponder those things. Really meditate on them. And this next one really hinges off of that. Are you sharing God's truth? You, you can know all of these things, but are you making disciples and sharing that truth of God? And we have a really great example today of going out. We have UCAN ministries this afternoon. How often are we actually sharing God's truth? I'm not going to lie to you. I fail at this often. I fail at it a lot. I keep God's truth in my own heart, and I don't share it with people. So I really encourage you to consider UCAN ministries, to take it seriously, because we're sharing God's truth. We're making disciples. And I encourage you this week to either go through the passage that we talked about today in Luke 2 and find more themes and follow them through the Bible, or choose one. Just think of a noun and follow where that noun goes through the Bible, because I promise you, it'll lead you to Jesus. And think on this this week, too. How is your story braided to God's story? All of the stories we've talked about today, they're all making this beautiful braid, and they're intertwined. Sometimes you see one more than the other, and sometimes you see the, another one more. And they lead to eternity. And we are, whether we're believers or not, intertwined in this story. The only difference is, does our braid continue with God for eternity? Or does our braid fall off and disappear? Because it's not a part of God's braid anymore. I encourage you to really dig into God's story and to consider how he desires to have you a part of it eternally. I'm going to end this by reading from John 21, 15 through 17, to really hit this home and to, as we come and have the worship team come up and worship us out. I'm going to read this, and I want you to think on it. John 21, 15 through 17. Oh, that's Luke. That's why I'm not seeing it. 
After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my sheep. Jesus told him, and Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. And a third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt that Jesus asked this question a third time. And he said, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. We are called as Jesus, the Lamb of God, in that manger who would die and feed his sheep. We are called, like him, to feed the sheep. We are called to feed one another, to build each other up, to continue on that story. And I'll pray us out and just think about these things. There's plenty of stories, just pick one. But Lord, you are all. This braid of stories, Lord, it may be numerous different themes and stories, Lord, but you are in every single one of them, Lord. And Lord, we pray that you will be magnified through our stories, Lord, and that we will grow in the knowledge of you, Lord, and in the knowledge of who you've made us to be, Lord. And Lord, may we share that truth every day that you will one day return and that this braid will continue on with you forever. Lord, we desire to see more and more people intertwined with you. We thank you for this church, Lord, and we pray, Lord, that this church, that its braid will continue on forever, Lord. We love you, Lord, and we pray that you will give us the strength to feed your sheep. Amen.